Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We are in Revelation chapter 7, and we are, Lord willing, going to finish the chapter this morning. So if you have your notes, just going back over very briefly what we touched on. The first note, God orders his world even when the chaos seems to reign. So we looked at how the angels at the beginning of chapter 7 hold back the judgment of God. Um, they are used as God's instruments to pour out judgment on the earth, but they are instructed to not do so until the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are sealed. Uh, the second point was God shields his servants so they might bear forth his light. And so the judgments that are coming would interfere with their ministry. And so they're to be sealed first. So that way, when those judgments take place, his saints are marked out and they are under special protection. So that way they can accomplish the evangelism that they're called to. And it's going to be quite an evangelism, as we'll see. Uh, the multitude that gets saved through the 144,000 is perhaps the greatest multitude in history. That's something that's debated among dispensationalists. Uh, I was reading Tim LaHaye's commentary this morning, and he's of the mind that more people will be saved during the seven years of the tribulation than all of the past 2,000 years combined. And I hope that he is right. I really do. Uh, I don't know. I know that the majority of people that make up the human population during those seven years will still not believe that doesn't mean though, that we won't have more revival than ever before. You can still have unprecedented revival in the tribulation and still that make up a minority of the human population. Yeah. So I, I think that, uh, he might be right. We might see more, the, more revival. All the Muslims might come to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, but we're going to look this morning a little bit more into the 144,000. Um, we touched on this last week, but there's there's so much interesting about them. It's like I've, I've taught through Revelation before, and I've read many commentaries on Revelation, and I found that I went into this study thinking, okay, I've got it basically down. Like I understand the book fairly well and I understand the basic chronology, but as I'm studying the 144,000, I'm looking at different commentators and certain questions that come up as you study. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that I still don't know. And really nobody knows. Uh, for example, the seal that they have, is it visible or invisible? I've always just taken for granted that it's visible and uh, I assume that I think that's a good assumption. And as of right now, I still believe that it is a visible seal. But there are a number of other people who think that it's invisible. They'll point to uh, Ezekiel 9.4. Uh, there's a vision there where Ezekiel is told, or sorry, not Ezekiel, actually the angels. Ezekiel is watching this happen. But uh, these angels go and they mark the faithful mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And these are people who will be spared from judgment. And so this is a visionary marking. So to Ezekiel, it's visible. But it would not be visible to people who were living in Jerusalem at the time, presumably. I mean, it seems uh, like God would maybe want to give them a little bit of cover and wouldn't want to be like, here they are, take them out. I mean, they, you know, I guess, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I would think it would be invisible. Yeah, exactly. I think that there there's arguments that can be made in favor of uh, it being invisible to mortals, but being visible to angels. We know for sure. In Revelation 9-4, when these demonic locusts are going about the world and they're stinging people, they do see this mark on the foreheads of the 144,000. So whether it's some kind of glowing supernatural mark that only can be seen by spirits, um, I don't know. Uh, I do think there is a good argument in favor of it being visible to normal people because the Antichrist, he's going to be giving people a mark and it will be visible. Um, at least it will be 
physically identifiable, whatever technology is involved, it will be something that is identifiable to people physically. Um, and so that does, to me, argue in favor of it being visible. But again, this is one of those things we don't know. Uh, we're going to be heaven side, praise the Lord. So we're not going to need to, we don't really need to worry about it right now because, you know, we'll find out about it one day. But um, some other things we want to talk about as far as the 144,000 are concerned, um, they are the first fruits of Israel. So there's going to be a great revival. The two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation 11, these witnesses are going to be the ones that lead the 144,000 to faith. So there's going to be a great revival in Israel. Romans 11 teaches this. All of Israel will be saved, meaning the majority of the Israelites will be saved. Uh, and I, I think that leaves room for there being some who don't repent. I think it will be a minority. Um, I think that the tribe of Dan, we'll talk more about this in a minute. I think the tribe of Dan may not uh, experience uh, a significant amount of revival. There may be some from that tribe who believe, but I think most of them probably won't. That's my theory. It's a theory that a lot of ancient rabbis and early church fathers believe. But setting that aside, the majority of Israel will repent according to Romans 11. And the 144 are the first fruits. It says in Revelation 14, a little bit more about these guys, starting in verse 1. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their forehead. So if you want to know what seal is placed on their forehead, well, it tells you right there, scripture interprets scripture. Verse one says that this is the father's name and the father's name is Yahweh. And the son shares that name according to many references in the Old Testament, and New Testament. So this is Jehovah, Yahweh. That's going to be marked on their head. Apparently it says, and I heard a voice from heaven, the voice uh, as of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn the song, but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they, which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. This means that like Paul, they would have been unmarried. Uh, these are people apparently who never entered into marriage. Okay. I take, virgin there is literal and uh, they were completely committed to this ministry uh, i think that makes sense paul talks about how being unmarried freed him up to be able to travel and to move around he didn't say that marriage was a bad thing not at all it was something that god designed in genesis however there are perks that come with being unmarried it frees you up to serve god in a more special way and these 144,000 are going to be serving god by traveling all over the world you think they're going to be young yes i think they'll probably be young yeah, but I don't know exactly how young. I mean, how old was Paul? Paul was probably, I'm guessing, maybe in his 30s, something like that. So uh, I think it's logical that they'll be somewhere, you know, in their 30s. But that's just a, a ballpark guess. I know Jesus' ministry began when he was um, 30. And so the priestly ministry began in ancient Israel at 30. So it makes sense that they'd be around that age. But we don't know. Um, it says that they are redeemed from the earth, uh, not defiled with women. That Obviously, it involves more than just not being married. They are also um, pure, okay? They're, they're not immoral uh, like the rest of the world will be and like most people are in our culture when it, when it comes to this topic. Um, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So first fruits ensures there's going to be a greater revival to come after they are saved. And they're going to be instrumental in that. I mean, Paul, when he got saved, he preached to Jews 
and he preached to Gentiles. And whenever he went somewhere, he would preach to the Jew first in that area and he preached to the Gentiles. So many Jews will come into the fold through the ministry of these witnesses in addition to many other Gentiles. And it says, in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I don't think that means that they're sinless. I know I've read some people think that, okay, they're going to be sinless. I don't think so. Paul wasn't sinless. But I think that we have people like Paul. They're filled with the Spirit. They are given a special commission, uh, like the, the gift of apostle, the gift of prophet. These are special commissions that are seen in Scripture. In Ephesians 2, it talks about how they're foundational. So I think that not everybody is going to receive the same spiritual gifts that the 144,000 have, but they're going to use those as Paul did in traveling and planning churches and witnessing to the nations. Now, one question that also comes up is, will they be martyred? There is a real big division among interpreters when it comes to this subject. We simply don't know. Some would say in chapter 14, it seems like they're in heaven when this is being depicted. Uh, some people think Mount Zion here is a reference to Jerusalem during the millennium. And so they make it all the way through the tribulation. They survive. They enter into the millennium in their natural bodies. And they become, they become like the first fruits of a redeemed Israel that enters into the millennium in their natural bodies. Uh, that's very reasonable. However, if you read this through, this is just my challenge to you because there are good people on either side of this debate. When I read this chapter, it seems that they're in heaven whenever this is taking place, when it, when it speaks of the 144,000 singing this in heaven and being on Mount Zion, to me, it seems like it's a reference to the Mount of Assembly in heaven, uh, in the heavenly new Jerusalem. So that would imply that these are people who will be protected up until a certain point in order to accomplish their purpose, but then they will be martyred. So there's another viewpoint there that they would be martyred. Some disagree, but I think that it's likely that, um, Many of them, if not most of them, will be martyred. Um, I don't know that for sure. Again, so I'm throwing it out there as speculation, just making you informed. Uh, but they are shielded to do God's will for a while. That means they're going to be kept safe for most of the time, so that way they are not hindered in sharing the gospel. Um, the next thing is, um, as far as their sealing, what exactly does it mean? Putting aside whether or not it's visible or invisible, I think it's visible, but uh, putting that aside for a moment, is this the ordinary sealing that someone gets from the Holy Spirit when they get saved, or is it something unique to them? Well, this is where there's lots of overlap and it blurs a little bit. Um, think about overcoming. There's a lot in the New Testament about overcoming, a lot in Revelation about being an overcomer. So if someone was to ask me, are all Christians overcomers? I could say yes and no at the same time without contradicting myself. I could say positionally, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're sealed and you're an overcomer. Yes, that means you've overcome death and hell because of what Christ has done for you. You're forgiven of your sins. You're eternally secure. Yes, you're an overcomer. But then at the same time, I could say, but in practice, being saved does not guarantee that you will live a victorious life in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. And that is another nuance to that idea of overcoming in the New Testament. So in a similar way, these are sealed men. Are they sealed with the Holy Spirit? I have no doubt about it. Um, I, I do agree with Tim LaHaye on this subject. Uh, I liked what he had to say. You know, when it comes to little things, I may not agree with him on everything, but as I was reading his commentary on Revelation this morning, he makes a really good case that whenever these witnesses are chosen, it's like Pentecost. And just as at Pentecost, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I have no doubt 
that these 144,000 and all people who are saved through their ministry are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the tribulation. Um, so I, I, to me, I think that makes most sense of the biblical data. Some people think that they won't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They'll just be empowered. But think of Pentecost. I mean, Peter in Acts chapter two, he quotes from Joel. Joel is not fully fulfilled, Joel chapter two, until these 144,000. So if they were indwelt in Acts chapter two, why wouldn't they be indwelt in Joel chapter two when the end times sees the final fulfillment of this? So I think that they will be indwelt. But again, we have to remind ourselves that there were certain things in the early church, that first fruits of the Christian movement that began 2000 years ago, there were certain things that we don't have the benefit of. I mean, when I got saved, a, a cloven tongue of fire did not appear over my head and I didn't start speaking in another language. I don't know if y'all have had one of those experiences. Okay. I have it. All right. So that was not normative. It's not something that you should look for. Like if I don't have that, then am I saved? You shouldn't doubt your salvation if you don't have a manifestation that way. In fact, we don't see that repeated anywhere in acts. It happened whenever they were in the upper room. Pentecost happens. The cloven tongues appear over, over their head. And throughout the rest of the book, yes, we see the people speaking in tongues. Sometimes when they receive the Holy Ghost, they speak in tongues. Sometimes they don't. Okay, so it's, it's very chaotic that there's not really a normal pattern throughout the book of Acts. All right, all we can say for sure is someone's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sealed the moment they believe. Paul teaches this in Ephesians chapter one. We know the sealing implies eternal security, uh, as it says in Ephesians 4.30. And so that's all we can say about the common experience that all believers have. But these people, they seem to have something unique to them. So I, I think of the sealing on their forehead as being similar to those tongues of fire. So when revival begins in Israel, when the first Jews come to salvation, whenever God is moving aside or, or setting aside this group of witnesses, I think he's going to mark them. And while it doesn't say they'll be marked with the cloven tongues, it, it does say they'll receive this special mark, this special seal. But just as those cloven tongues above the heads of Peter and James and John and everybody assembled in the upper room, just as that indicated that they had the Holy Spirit indwelling them, I think those marks on the foreheads of those witnesses also imply that they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Okay. But just because you have the indwelling doesn't mean you have the mark. Do you understand what I'm trying to say there? So I think that this mark is based on the sealing of the Holy Spirit, but it's something extra, just like speaking in tongues, prophesying, being an apostle. That is something extra. It's something that not everybody has. So when I read this about the 144,000, I, I can't deny that these are special people, very unique, right? And, and God has not called me to this type of ministry. No one has. So you're not one of the 144,000. The rapture hasn't happened yet. If you're listening to this, don't look for that. Okay. Don't, don't look for that expectation that God's going to call you and set you apart for that. This is something that will happen after the church is taken out of the world. Uh, but we do have something in common with these witnesses, we also have the Great Commission, and we may not fulfill it like Paul or like the 144,000, but we are to share the gospel with every living creature. That was not something that was given just to the apostles. In Matthew 28, when it talks about them sharing the gospel, he says, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. That can't just be about the apostles because they didn't live to the end of the age. So that applies to the entire church, um, even though they ministered in a special way. Um, so the best option in my mind is to take this ceiling that they have as unique to them, whether visible or not, but like overcoming it's, it's based on something that all believers have. Um, uh, I hope, and I, and I believe right now in my life that God looks upon me. And I think that, uh, I am 
and it's always hard to say something like this because I feel like I'm never good enough, but I think I'm doing what the Lord wants me to right now in my life. I'm not under any particular conviction like I'm doing something wrong. God's always showing me stuff as it comes up. Uh, but I believe that if I persist in my faith and, and living for the Lord, as I be a light to my family and being a light to my kids, being a light to y'all, I, I think that God will look upon me as an overcomer. But even if I'm not an overcomer in that sense, I'm still saved. Okay. So I think that the 144,000, they're overcomers and they're sort of like, uh, apostles or prophets, uh, with their special ministry. All right. Now let's go to verses four through eight. Go back to chapter seven. So we're not going to read through the whole thing. It mentions there were 12,000 chosen from each tribe. It doesn't mention Ephraim and Manasseh. It mentions Joseph, but Ephraim and Manasseh were sons of Joseph. So that kind of makes sense that they're included in there. Um, it doesn't mention the tribe of Dan. Uh, Judah is listed first because Judah is the royal tribe. You know, Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah. That makes sense. So why is Dan omitted? And there have been many uh questions about this. It seems that even outside of revelation, outside of Christian circles among the ancient Jews and the second temple period that they believe that the tribe of Dan was going to be the antichrist tribe. So the Jews obviously were very eschatological. They had a lot of beliefs about the coming Messiah. They had a lot of beliefs about Jacob's trouble and the millennium. They just didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but in their eschatological beliefs, they believed that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. Um, and he would be a false Messiah in the literal sense. He claimed to be the Messiah, even though he's not the Messiah. And it seems like early Christian premillennialists seem to hold this belief as well. So while they would disagree with their, you know, Jewish friends, when it came to the identity of Jesus, they obviously maintained he was Messiah when the Jews did not. Uh, they did agree with them on this particular point that the tribe of Dan uh, is not going to be blessed in the same sense as the other tribes because it appears the tribe of Dan will, will produce the Antichrist and naturally they will follow his lead. Um, I think that's reasonable, but again, that's pure speculation. Uh, other people argue that the reason Dan is admitted here is because of uh, Dan's idolatry. Uh, and Dan was idolatrous in the past. We see a history of that. However, that doesn't really explain why they're admitted here because that was past Dan. That was past tribe of Dan. And so and they were all idolaters. Yeah, so exactly. All the tribes at some point. So why would Dan be admitted for that past idolatry unless they resume their idolatry in the future? Which again goes along with this idea that the Antichrist, who's presenting a new form of idolatry, of, of worship of himself, that uh, they may go along with that worship. Um, this doesn't mean that Dan will not be in the millennium. Dan will be in the millennium in some form. The reason that we know that is because God promised unconditionally to all the tribes uh, as descendants of Abraham that they would be blessed in the millennium. But the reason Dan may be omitted here is because there just wasn't enough of the tribe of Dan that believed in Jesus in the tribulation to form 12,000 witnesses. So that's a possibility that there's just not a lot of people in Dan that believe and God may bless Dan through a small number. I mean, we know that God said whenever they refused to go into the land at Kadesh Barnea because of the giants, he said, I'm going to start over with Moses. I'll start with Moses and Aaron and, you know, obviously left out, but included in that would be Caleb and Joshua, people who are willing to go. I'll start over with y'all. So a small number, but the rest of these all wipe out. That didn't happen. But uh, God said that he could have done that. And so God may start over with a very small number of people from the tribe of Dan, the majority uh, possibly following the Antichrist. 
Um, but what we can say for sure about this list here, and this is the third point on your notes if you're following along, God remembers when the world forgets. God remembers when the world forgets, and he reveals mercy when one only expects wrath. I mean, Israel has been rejecting Christianity for 2,000 years. And while in the past one might say, well, Christians weren't being much of a light, like in the Middle Ages, were Christians doing a good job evangelizing the Jews? No, not at all. (laughs) Um, But today we have a lot of Christians that are doing that, right? But still we see the majority of them are not receptive to the gospel. So one might expect that God would, like the Reformed theologians believe, sort of just cast them off and say they're a lost cause. But when we expect wrath, God reveals mercy. He shows his grace and he's going to keep his promise to restore Israel. And uh, there will be for certain a revival spiritually of them, not just restored to their land, but a spiritual revival. And God also remembers his promises to the fathers. He remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if the Jews don't deserve it right now. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of their faith and because of their obedience, God is going to honor them. That's why in Romans 11, it says that the Jews, even though they were cast off for a time, they were beloved for the sake of the fathers, not for their own faith, because they didn't have it. They didn't have faith in Christ other than the remnant. But Paul makes it very clear that God is, he's not casting Israel off completely despite their unbelief because they're beloved for the sakes of the fathers. So God takes lowly Israel and he displays his might. And if God can take Israel, Okay, who's going to be persecuted worse than the Holocaust during the tribulation. Okay, it's going to make the Holocaust look like nothing. If Israel, that persecuted, that rejected by the world, as we see the world becoming more and more opposed to Israel, even in our time, politically speaking, if God can take Israel and be light to the world through them and, and bring in a multitude that's never before seen in history, a multitude of saints, a multitude of converted souls, then he can use that same lightness right now. So that means that we shouldn't, I think sometimes we do this, uh, well, uh, you know, there'll be a great victory then. Yeah, we may not see the same victory now. Obviously, it's promised that it's going to happen after the rapture, okay? So I don't think we're going to see the same thing right now before the rapture. But we often underestimate God, don't we? I do it. I do it all the time. I underestimate what God can and can't do because sometimes I think, oh, well, this person, I just know them. I know this person and I know how stubborn they are. and. Um, you know, I think I should just brush the, you know, the sand off, brush the dust off of my feet and, and just move on, you know? And I think that there is a point where if you share the gospel with somebody and they keep being resistant, yes, you can say just as Christ instructed, I move on to someone else, but I don't feel comfortable ever writing somebody off because I think that if we were living in the first century guys and we knew Paul, we would have written him off before he was converted. We would have said, there's no way Paul's going to come to faith. And so we shouldn't say, all right, well, you know, this person has been given the gospel. They've been given the apologetics. They've been given the love and yet they resist. They're probably not going to be saved. Don't say that to yourself. Um, And and don't say that it's too late for that person until they take their last breath because God can work miracles like Paul. I mean, I think if King Manasseh, King Manasseh, uh, the ancient king of Israel, you know, promoted idolatry, promoted temple prostitution, promoted, uh, sacrifice of children, including his own son. And yet he was carried off into captivity. And while he was in chains, he called out upon God, asked for forgiveness and repented. And God restored him back to his throne. 
And he undid everything that he did before, just like Paul did. He undid it all. He, he knocked down the temples. He outlawed, you know, the temple cults. And so if God can take someone like Manasseh and change him or like Paul, then he can certainly change any of those people in our lives that we think are too hard for rebellion. It doesn't mean that they will repent. But again, we shouldn't write them off and say that it can't happen. Another thing that we should remind ourselves of is that God wins a multitude of souls when the world is darkest. The tribulation is the darkest period in history. It is the worst time. If you think it's been bad before, okay, it's, it's going to be worse. And I'm glad that we're not going to be there. Praise God for that. But light is brighter when it's darker out. And so while we may not be in the tribulation when the world's at its darkest, I feel like we're getting to that place where America is in its darkest. And, and we kind of think, oh, well, there's not really a whole lot that can be done. Well, politically, maybe there's not a whole lot that can be done. Maybe we're not going to turn our country back around politically. And, and you know what? Should that be our number one goal? I'm not saying it shouldn't be goal at all, but should that be our number one goal? No, our priority ought to be seeing people get saved. And if a great multitude can be saved in the tribulation when the world's at its darkest, can, it, can we not see something similar happen in America if we're faithful to God? I think we can. I'm not saying it'll happen, but we should believe that God can do that and trust in him to do it. Uh, God washes away sin even when sinners have neglected him. I think not just of Israel, guys. I think about these people who they have put off salvation. Uh, not just they haven't heard. These are people that have heard. Okay, these are people that are left behind. They knew family members that told them about the rapture and they got left behind. And I have no doubt that a number of them will come to faith. God is patient with them. And you might think to yourself, I've heard people say this, why should they get a second shot? And I'm like, who are you to say something like that? I mean, did God not save you from the fires of hell? I mean, so be careful when you say something like that. All right. God loves everybody. He doesn't just love you. And uh, these are people who, you know, they waited till the last minute. But God in his patience and his long suffering was eager to give them an opportunity. And so when I'm talking to people and they say, well, this tribulation stuff's too complicated. Why does it have to be so detailed? Rapture, tribulation, millennium, blah, blah, blah. I say, well, God's dragging it out. <laughs> He's dragging it out because he wants people to repent. God doesn't write people off. And so we shouldn't either. And lastly, God sends light to the most distant corners before bringing judgment. Um, instead of making judgment about, or sorry, instead of us making judgments about who needs the gospel more, let's just follow where Christ leads us and trust him with the results. Um, you know, there's this question and, and debate among Baptists. I remember when I was in college, it was, should we go to, you know, or should we fund missions to these countries or these countries? You know, should we fund mission work to Europe or should we fund it more to Africa? And it's like, look, um, I can see both sides to that, but ultimately it comes down to this. We're not in charge and it's not our responsibility to make that judgment. If somebody says to me that God has called me to go to Chicago or God has called me to go to somewhere in Europe where they have been exposed to the gospel. Yes, right. South U.S. If they say God has called me to go to the South U.S. and plant a church and share the gospel there, that is between you and God. Who knows how many people God knows have not really heard the gospel, and he's putting you there to do that. So we shouldn't make judgments about, all right, well, it's all on us, okay, to determine who needs what more, and we should go to these people and not go to these people. It's not on us to do that. Just go where God leads you. And trust me, if you're open to God in your life, he's going to lead you where you need to go. And he may just surprise you and say, yeah, I do want you to go to Papua New Guinea. 
Hey, I do want you to go to Indonesia. Hey, I do want you to go to, you know, deepest, darkest Africa. Maybe he'll call you to do that. Maybe he'll say, yeah, I want you to go to LA. I want you to go to a rural. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I want you to go to uh, a rural place in Appalachia where there are churches everywhere, but there's a lot of legalism and not a lot of clarity about the gospel, perhaps. And so, and a lot of snake handling. Yes, yes, Andy. So, uh, God is going to, during the tribulation, send people where they need to go, right? The witnesses are not directing themselves. I have no doubt that God's directing them to go to those who need to hear. And so I believe that God gives that same direction to us now. Maybe not exactly in the same extravagant way he does with the witnesses, but he still guides us in the same manner. All right, now let's look at verses 9 through 17 and let's wrap it up. Um, It says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb. And the angel stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sitteth, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The next point or fill in the blank on your notes is God's goodness does not change. God's goodness does not change regardless of where the sinner finds himself in life or history. God's goodness does not change regardless of where the sinner finds himself in life or history. Um, these are people who come out of the great tribulation. Apparently this looks forward. Um, the 144,000 are going to be very active starting in the first half of the tribulation, but it appears that these are people who got saved at some point after their ministry begins. And they came out of great tribulation because they were martyred for their faith. It appears that in the second half, the same people who got saved through the 144,000 witnesses, those are going to be people who are faced with that choice. Uh, to take the mark or not. And uh, these are people who, of course, refuse to take the mark and they stand before God. Uh, They stand before God overcomers, no doubt. Uh, But they also stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, just like all saints. And so there is something, guys, in this passage that applies to all of us. Uh, I'm not a martyr. Okay, I'm not living in the tribulation. So how do I find a connection with this? Well, again, Jesus Christ, according to scripture, he's what? He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so these same blessings that he's going to give to these people in the tribulation, we can look forward to those same blessings and we ought to. I mean, just read them again. Like when it talks about God wiping away all tears from their eyes, is that just for these people? Is it just for these tribulation martyrs? No, it's for all the saints. And so God's goodness does not change. And um, one last thing that I'll point out about these people um, Though the Antichrist tries to silence them in heaven, they keep singing their praise to God in heaven. And it encourages me that no matter how 
oppressive the world can be in silencing people by trying to close down their ministries or even in the worst case scenario, taking a believer's life, you can't silence the witness of God. And it shows that God's plan is a lot bigger than us. And uh, sometimes we in the West, we have a very individualistic mindset. It's all on me. It's something I got to do. Well, maybe God doesn't want me to do that. Maybe God wants somebody else to do that. I do what God leads me to do, what I can do. And uh, I, I personally don't want to be a cookie cutter Christian that looks like everybody else. Um, I think that that's bland. I think that we should all be members of the body according to the diversity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given us. And we should serve God exactly as he leads us to. And so, again, while I may not be able to sing this song that they're singing in heaven from the exact same perspective that they have, um, I know that I'm going to be there right next to them. And they're going to call me brother, just as I can call them the same. And so we'll talk uh, more about that next week. Hopefully it's been a blessing to you. And we'll be moving on to chapter 8. Thank you.